Whenever I preach, I want to say this is the best story in all of Scripture, but I think this time I really will say it and mean it. From the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter, the greatest love story ever told, let us live into the story together. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. Who won that race? One won the race to the tomb, but the other won the race into the tomb. So Peter sees the linen wrappings lying there. And the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Friends, let's pause here for a moment while Mary weeps beside the tomb. Can we wait just a moment? Can you call to mind that still, hushed quiet with nothing but the sound of her crying? crying in the dark, outside the grave. Let's wait another moment. Christ had surely been lying still in the tomb the day before. His body turned cold. Mary Ludy writes, he sleeps like a seed in the earth. As we had just closed our Good Friday service with the words, The tomb now stands triumphant. Jesus' dearest friends are crying, running, hiding, denying, misunderstanding. But wait here with Mary in the cold, still dark of that morning, outside that empty tomb. Does it make you want to squirm with the anxiety? of waiting. And can you imagine her fear? In the Bible commentary that I love, Feasting on the Word, I was reminded in these dark hours of Easter morning before the sun rises was traditionally the time that the Christians, new proselytes who were ready to be baptized, would come to the font under the dark of night in those quiet hours to be named and baptized. 
at the font. They would be dressed, I imagine, in those draping white linen clothes, just like the ones that were folded in the tomb. And it wasn't out of this romantic mysticism of it, the way I think I'm imagining it. It was out of the very real fear, as Miss Alex was just telling the children. It was scary. It was very real fear for them. What they were entering into was a scandal. It would shock and offend all those around them if they knew. It was dangerous and risky to choose to be baptized into Christ's death in the hopes of a resurrection like his, having chosen this life to truly live as a Christian meant to open yourself to the threat of persecution and death. Esau McCulley wrote in the New York Times a few days ago on the unsettling power of Easter. He wrote, this celebration is so much more than a celebration of Easter, a celebration of spring. Easter is a frightening prospect. For the women, the only thing more terrifying than a world with Jesus dead was one in which he was alive again. This is far heavier than what we think of when we celebrate the springtime joys of Easter. Can we wait with Mary in her terror? Can we wonder what this means? I'm going to switch to this other translation I love for the rest of the story. You will hear how the tenses change because in the most accurate translations, it's back and forth between the present tense. It makes it come so much more alive for us and also the way Jesus speaks to Mary. Let's listen again for the word of the Lord. So Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she was weeping then, she bent down into the tomb, and she sees two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet of where the body Jesus had lain. And they say to her, Madam, why are you weeping? She says to them, They took away my Lord, and I do not know where they put him. Saying these things, she turned back around and she sees Jesus standing there. And she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus says to her, Madam, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Don't you love this translation of Madam? In the NRSV it says woman, which doesn't have the kindness and the reverence that we hear in Madam. So not woman, whom do you seek? Woman, why do you weep? But Madam, Madam, why are you weeping? So first the angels had asked her, Madam, why are you weeping? And then Jesus says to her, Madam, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? And she thinking that he is the gardener, says to him, My Lord, if you have carried him off, tell me where you put him, and I will take him away. Jesus says to her, Mary. Turning, she says to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, 
which means teacher. Jesus says to her, do not cling to me. You can imagine she's trying to throw her arms around him and hang on to him tight. She's not going to let go this time. But he says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene comes to the disciples announcing, I have seen the Lord as well as the things he has told her. May God add a blessing to the reading and the hearing and the understanding of God's holy word. So that, my friends, is the first Easter sermon, which Mary Magdalene, the apostle to the apostles, preached, because she, and only she, could wait beside the cross and then wait beside the tomb and then conquer her fear to go in and see, conquer her fear of these angels, questioning them, challenging them. Perhaps she thinks this is a grave robber, and she says, give me back the body of my beloved teacher. And she's rewarded for her persistence with this Easter moment. She waited and she waited. She hung on. She questioned. She argued. And she met Jesus there in that garden. The good news isn't just that the tomb is empty. It isn't even just that Jesus is raised. It's that God in Jesus comes back to us and calls us by name. Jesus comes back for her and says, Mary. And that is when she realizes who he is. Jesus comes back to make sure that the tombs of our own lives, and I know we all have them, Jesus comes back to make sure the tombs of our own lives are emptied, that the hell we have sometimes found ourselves in is a place Jesus will come to meet us, to free us, to unlock the door. As we sing in our hymns, Jesus opens paradise, but Jesus doesn't go to the doors of hell and throw them open and say, come on in. No, Jesus goes into the places in our lives that hurt, goes into hell and unlocks the doors beside us, with us, from the inside. Nothing will scare Jesus away. The person who is using substances to numb some unhealed hurt, the person who struggles with anger, as a defense mechanism, the person who is so steeped in denial that they blame everyone around them for their mistakes, the person who's pushed everyone away, the person who keeps pulling everyone close but only lets them see the mask they have created. We can make our own hells out of the ways we live, but the creeds do say, Jesus descended into hell for each of us. And the artists show him reaching into the tombs and pulling the bodies out with both hands. He won't leave us alone in our places of hurt. Are you in a pit? 
Can you reach your hands back up to Jesus and let him pull you out? We do not wait until after we die to know whether we have been saved. Jesus comes to us again and again and again. During Lent, we dwelled on the passage, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, the cosmos, everything that has been created. But here in this passage, we remember that God loves each of us as individuals. God knows our names. God calls us by our names. I just came from the anti-Asian hate rally across the street. I saw many of you there, and some of the stories that I heard will stay with me, and I'm sure they will with many of you too. Stories in particular from some of the young women in our community who have had the experience of being one of only two girls in the classroom of Asian descent who routinely, they said, had been confused for each other by teachers who would hand back all of the tests or all of the exam papers back to each and every student and then stuck with the last two and the two empty desks would be the two girls in the class who actually look nothing alike but are both of Asian descent and they would realize the teacher still couldn't tell them apart six months in. One of the girls said, our eyes are set so differently in our faces. We're not the same height, we're not the same weight, but because our hair is long and black and straight and our eyes are similar only in that they're almond-shaped, we can't be told apart from one another. Connecticut Attorney General William Tong and our state senator Tony Huang told about how they have been routinely confused for one another by their own colleagues in our Capitol building. The Attorney General called Senator. The Senator called Attorney General. How loudly these events speak. And it was full of the echoes of James Baldwin's collected essays, Nobody Knows My Name. That pain of not just anonymity, but being unknown or misnamed. Having someone know your name has power. The way Jesus knows Mary's, the way she responds with her name for him, as she would have called him Rabuni, like a pet name, teacher. At our meeting of the loft a few weeks ago, some of the wonderful young trans people who gather there week after week to share their stories and support each other talked about the journey of of choosing a new name. The power of having not just a first name to choose, but a first name and a middle name. The power of having people know your name and call you that name. The power of having people you aspire to be like, to name yourself after. God knows this power. There is power in God's name. God is the one who says, I am who I am the one whose name sounds like the sound of our breathing. One of my friends from growing up had a child, and at our home church, my parents told me that baby had just been born that morning, and in the joys and concerns, they announced that my friend Charles was a new father, 
This baby girl had been born, and the pastor said, and we don't know her name yet, but God does. And I've always thought that is so beautiful. God knows our names, and God wants us to know God's name. So at the font, we are given a name. For some of us, we may rename ourselves. We may be called by our pet names. You may cherish the name most that your grandnieces or grandchildren or great-grandchildren or best friends call you, a nickname that you've been given. God knows your name, the one you want to be called. May we all have this moment this Easter moment, when we feel as though Jesus, calling us by our names, reaches out into our lives and pulls us out of our fear. But remember to wait with Mary. Even if that place feels like hell, like absence, like separation, like being misidentified or misunderstood, those moments when you feel like Jesus, like you are a sleeping seed, The good news, the story that we tell again on Easter Sunday is always happening all around us, and there are still these moments when we wait, when we feel like we are waiting to be known and called and loved and saved. But friends, something will break through. Even when things feel irreparably broken, So remember, your Easter moment will come. Jesus will come for you, naming you, sharing the joy of new life with you. You may need to hang on a little longer. Picture Mary there waiting with you in her bravery and her courage. Wait and wonder and be brave, and it will come. Alleluia and amen.